0: Well, good morning, church. Glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Ty Hall. I'm the worship pastor here at FCC. Uh, And to start off our service uh, sermon this morning, I have a shocking revelation for you. Uh, Most of my job is uh, working with uh, the musical elements of our service during the work week. And so my shocking revelation is that during the work week, I listen to a lot of music. I know, shocking, I know, it's surprising, but I listen to a lot of music, whether it be uh, old favorites, old hymns, new songs that we're thinking about adding, or even just practicing what we're going to have on the next coming Sunday. I listen to music all the time, but I always have. Even before becoming a worship pastor, I would listen to music while driving, while working out, while running errands. When uh, I got the AirPods, I was so excited that I could take the song that I was listening to in the car with me into Target. That was such a nice experience to say, I could take my music everywhere. Um, but I actually, when I play video games, I purposefully mute the soundtrack of the video game so I can have my own playlist going instead. I like my music, I like what I like, and so I listen to music all the time. Uh, But as someone who listens to a lot of music, one thing I've noticed is we love to write songs about one topic in particular. We love love. There are so many love songs that have been written through decades and generations, through different genres and styles, and so uh, because we have Spotify and Apple Music and Google to get every piece of music, every written at our fingertips, I figure I'd go through some of the best love songs, or at least what we think some of the best love songs are. Of course, uh, you've got the obvious ones from the R&B genre. You've got Alicia Keys' If I Ain't Got You. We've got Etta James' At Last. We've got uh, Al Green's Let's Stay Together And of course Lionel Richie's Hello (laughs) Is it me you're looking for that's one of my favorites. Uh, but across the genre spectrum, we have country with a solid showing as well. Uh, Rascal Flatts has uh, their version of Bless the Broken Road. Uh, and then Shania Twain has the double uh, header of From This Moment On and You're Still the One. Uh, if you saw went to a wedding in the 90s, you might have heard one of those songs in a first dance for a couple. Uh, but we cannot forget the classic love rock ballad. You've got foreigners, I wanna know what love is. You've got Aerosmiths, I don't wanna miss a thing. REO's speed Speedwagons, can't fight this feeling anymore. And the Bee Gees, how deep is your love? So many good love songs. We love love. We love singing about it, we love writing about it, we love seeing it in movies and TV shows. How many times have you been watching a rom-com and you finally see the couple get together at the end of the movie and you go, yes, it happened. We love it. We love theorizing about it. But why do we love love? Where did all this love start? Do we actually know what real love is? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Ty, this feels more like a Valentine's Day sermon than it does an Advent sermon. (laughs) But today, we are going to be celebrating uh, the Advent candle of love. That's the candle we'll be lighting today. The previous two weeks, we've been lighting the candles of hope and peace. And today, we will light the candle of love. I really do enjoy Advent, this season of preparation and waiting until Christmas. It directs us. It gives us time to reflect and process the miracle that the incarnation of Jesus is to not fly by Emmanuel, God with us, but to intentionally think about what the coming of Jesus represents in the context of hope, peace, and today, love. I'll be honest, I had a hard time paring down my sermon this morning because there are so many different expressions of love throughout the Bible. I've got a slide with some of the big ones that come to mind. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Then we've got 1 John 4, 9 through 11 in verse 19. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you might have heard love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc., etc. And then, of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved... The world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, you could take any one of those passages and you could do a whole sermon on the context in which it's written to the people who it's written to, and all of the things that surround love in that section. And we could go a lot of places. (laughs) But today, we'll stick to Advent and the birth of the Messiah and the events leading up to it. Throughout the months of December, November, and if we're honest, most of October, we all are told to prepare for Christmas. It is coming! Make sure you've got your lights on the tree. Make sure you're using the most energy-efficient lights outside. There's a new type of wrapping paper that you have to use this year. And by the way, have you heard Mariah Carey's, all I want for Christmas is you 49 times yet? (laughs) But if we're honest, does this actually prepare us for anything? Does all this advertising actually give us something to prepare for? To me, it feels more like a to-do list, a checklist that we have to get done during this season. Buy the things, decorate the places, listen to the songs. Pastor Eric mentioned Advent calendars in his first sermon of the series. This practice of opening a little gift or moving a counter day by day until finally it's Christmas and we can begin the celebration feast. I've never had an official Advent calendar myself, but I've been participating in a little bit of a different way this year. One of the resources that Pastor Eric uh, recommended I use for this series, is, uh, for this sermon, is the book Honest Advent by Scott Erickson. It's a shorter devotional that, wouldn't you know it, has exactly 25 chapters. So each day, I've been rereading the corresponding chapter as a practice of waiting, sitting in the patience and the impatience of Advent. I mentioned this practice because as we celebrate love in this context, there is a lot of waiting. <laughs> there is a lot of waiting. God's love shows up throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, I'm going to talk about uh, his love expressed through the patriarchs. We see God's care for his people to, toward the, the patriarchs and the nation of Israel through the covenants that he makes we see these slivers of hope in the Old Testament that despite humanity's rebellion, God will not leave us where we are. We can look to Abraham and see that God has a few promises for him. Number one, Abraham is going to have a huge family. The nation of Israel checks that box. Number two, they would have a piece of land, a place to call home. Now on the day of Jesus, there is a place to call home. There is a nation, but there's this big scary guy looking over their shoulder called Rome. And before them, there was Assyria and Babylon. So it's a check, but we're a little concerned about that one. And then number three, that Abraham's family would be a blessing to all humanity. We'll get there in a second. God makes another covenant with Moses, and by extension, the rest of Israel. After their rescue from Egypt, God makes a promise to make them a holy kingdom of priests that will spread his blessing and glory to all nations. He instructs them to obey all the laws given in the commandments. This would show their allegiance externally reflected in the way that they were living. Now, pretty quickly, the people of Israel sort of forget about that. (laughs) They walk into the promised land and they say, hey, can we have a king like the neighbors next door? And they get this guy named Saul and Saul starts out pretty strong and then kind of loses it in the second half. Uh, And then suddenly this local hero, David, becomes king. And David isn't perfect per se, uh, but he makes a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with him that God promises David that he would raise up a descendant whose throne and kingdom would last forever. These covenants tend to build on one another. Abraham is promised a blessing to all nations. Moses is promised that the nation of Israel would bring God's blessing and glory to all nations. And David is promised an heir whose kingdom would last forever. I'm wondering if there's a way we can knock out all three of those in one go. I feel like that'd be pretty efficient. If you're looking for a resource or a deeper dive into these covenants, I would recommend uh, the YouTube channel, The Bible Project. They have a lot of really great videos on these covenants. Uh, You're going to look for the subtitle, The Royal Priest, if you want a deeper dive uh, into the covenants. Jesus' incarnation fulfills these promises. He answers the promises that God has made and that Israel was waiting for. Now, whether they recognize that or not at the time is a different story. But God didn't fulfill these covenants just because he was required to. In fact, these deals were broken by humanity time and time again. Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands because he didn't trust God to provide an heir with his wife Sarah. Strike one. The people of Moses' day were supposed to follow the commandments, and Moses walks out of his mountain meeting with God to find out that they are already breaking their end of the bargain, gets so frustrated that he breaks the covenants and has to climb, uh, or, sorry, breaks the commandments and has to go back up the mountain to get some new ones. Strike two. And David and his family were supposed to stay faithful to God. I'm sure Bathsheba has some interesting things to say about that. I'm sure, I'm sure David's son Solomon has some interesting things to say about that strike three. And just like that, pretty quickly, God's promises, his covenants have gone forgotten by the people of Israel. The nation did not hold up their end of the bargain. So by all human legally binding terms and practices, God doesn't have to hold up his end of the bargain either. He doesn't have to send Jesus to live a human life. He doesn't have to walk through the wilderness and be tempted. He doesn't have to be questioned and mocked and scorned. He doesn't have to be arrested and die on a cross because Israel didn't keep their end of the deal. But he does all this anyway. Why? Because he loves us. He cares for us more than we can imagine. Before uh, Abraham's covenant, God had made another covenant with a guy named Noah. When Noah was around, God flooded the earth, and after that flood, God made a covenant with Noah to never flood the earth again. But this covenant is different than the other three, because humans have no side in this covenant. There is no deal with them. There is no end of the deal for them to hold up or to fail. God establishes early on that even in humanity's failures, God will still be faithful, I'm sure it probably would have been easier to flood the world a few more times, hit the reset button during some of Israel's history. But God's faithfulness to his people, his love for us is greater than that. The fulfillment of that love, though, took time. These promises took time. Generations passed. Kingdoms rose to power and crumbled in the time between the establishing of the covenants and the arrival of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah was given a sneak peek of what was to come with Jesus, and even that was 500 years before his arrival. This took time. There was patience. There was waiting. That's why I love the practice of Advent. It reminds us of that patience, of that waiting. But after hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, Jesus arrives as a baby, small, vulnerable little child, to a young woman engaged to a carpenter. If you've been around church, you might have heard this part of the story before. You might have even heard some of the subverted expectations that Jesus brought with him. That the God of the universe was reduced to a small child without title or claim. The fulfillment of the covenant to David brought into the world not as a prince or a warrior, but as a son to a labor-intensive profession. The fulfillment of the covenant with Moses stepped into creation not as an all-powerful force, of glory and blessing and peace, but as a helpless child. The answer to Abraham's promise, entering as a seemingly finite human to somehow bless the whole world. By all accounts, the birth of Jesus was kind of regular in a way. Sure, there were the supernatural things like angels popping in and out, there were wise men walking to and from, but the birth of Jesus was also human. As I was reading through the book of Honest Advent again, I was struck by one of the pieces of artwork that precedes each chapter. Each chapter, the, uh, the author puts in a little piece of artwork to give sort of a theme to his chapter, and this chapter is simply called Motherhood. And I love this image. It depicts Eve meeting a pregnant Mary, and there's a lot to take in here. You might notice the apple behind Eve already eaten reminding us of Adam and Eve's sin and the moment that separated humanity from God. The two women reaching toward each other, this connection of two mothers in extremely special circumstances. You'll see a serpent coiling from Eve only to be crushed by Mary, pointing us back to Genesis 3:14 and 15, where God gives the serpent his consequences. "'Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. "'You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, "'and I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and hers. "'He will crush your head and you will strike his heel.'" Scott Erickson, the author, describes the image in this way. "'It's like they're at a cosmic party "'where they don't know each other at first, "'but when they get introduced, "'they find out they are deeply connected on so many levels.'" They also notice they have a billion mutual friends on Facebook. In this incredible image, Eve is experiencing hope and grace from a brokenness she never thought she'd see an end to, yet her face could also be that of a knowing mom bestowing wisdom and compassion on a new mom. As if to say, parenting is one of the greatest and hardest adventures of a lifetime. You'll love your children and want to have them forever, but you may see one of them die before their time, and it's the absolute worst. Here, in this image, we find the woman to first give birth, meeting the woman who is going to give birth to the Son of God. But somehow, in the midst of this extraordinary meeting, there is some familiarity. I'm sure we've all seen it. An experienced mom with kids of her own, giving advice, giving counsel to a new mother, laughing about the stresses brought with a newborn baby, rejoicing in the happy moments of parenting, celebrating full nights of sleep and first steps, little syllables and gurgles that come before full words and sentences, sharing the burdens of teething and the worries of medical checkups. But the extraordinary aspects of these two women cannot be overlooked. The woman who was there when sin and death entered the world, in this picture hypothetically meeting the woman carrying the one who would be victorious over sin and death, triumphant and everlasting in his reign. And this was an extremely personal matter for Eve, not just as a human, but as a mother herself. You see, Eve knows what it's like to lose a child. In Genesis 4, just one chapter after Adam and Eve had been cast out of the garden, we find the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain works the fields, and Abel works with animals, and they both bring part of their harvest before God as an offering. Cain brings just some stuff, and Abel brings the best he has to offer from his flocks. Based on these offerings, Abel is shown favor by God, and Cain gets jealous and angry and walks his brother out into a field and kills him. And then he lies before God about his involvement in the murder and is cast into exile. I can't begin to imagine what Eve is thinking and feeling as the mother of these two boys. And as I look at that image of these two women, I can't help but be struck by this connection. Just as Eve's sons were taken from her before their time, Jesus would be taken from Mary prematurely. But while Abel's death was a result of new sin entering the world, Jesus' death would bring about the victory over sin and death. I want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek into my sermon preparation, uh, and I promise there's a reason for this, and it'll make sense in a second. As I said before, I listen to a lot of music, always have. Uh, but that doesn't change when I'm writing sermons. Uh, I usually pick one song to have on in the background on repeat while I write, sort of a musical thesis to the sermon, Uh, and it's usually uh, with some some extra help from God kind of guiding me in that way. Uh, When I preached in July on Psalm 46, I had a a rendition of the psalm by Shane and Shane, pretty easy musical thesis to find. Uh, While well, I taught in October on Galatians 3, dealing with unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church, I had the song Sane God by Elevation Worship on repeat. A song for the church to worship God as the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, Israelite patriarchs, two relatively recent songs. But for this sermon, God had to dig pretty deep into my musical databanks. Uh, we're going all the way back to 1995, Stephen Curtis Chapman, this baby. Look at, look at that hair. <laughs> look, at, look at that style. I'll forgive you if you haven't heard this song before. It's a bit of an obscure pull for sure. But let me explain. This whole song is detailing Jesus' life and the seemingly regular nature of it. In his humanity, he was like us in every single way. The first verse goes something like this. He cried when he was hungry, did all the things that babies do. He rocked and he napped on his mother's lap and he wiggled and giggled and cooed. There were cheers when he took his first step and there were tears when he got his first teeth. Almost everything about this little baby seemed as natural as it could be. I think God brought this song to mind for me for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first thing is it brought back a memory. Uh, This was the first song that I realized, I would hear this song over and over again, but this was the first song I realized that when the Bible said Jesus was human, It meant Jesus was human. (laughs) It meant that he would cough, he would get a headache, there were foods that he liked more than others. There was probably a morning where he woke up and he had a little knot in his neck because he slept funny. (laughs) Jesus was human and it took this song to help me realize that. And I remember this song because I remember my parents would sing it all the time. I can remember the sound of the CD player spinning as my mom or dad would belt this song out with accompanying harmonies. And as I prepared for this sermon, I once again realized the depth of Jesus' human experience. He had a mother, just like us. And while Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father, Joseph was a father figure who loved him as a father would. And Mary loved Jesus. His mother loved him. And suddenly the God that had been showing love for thousands and thousands of years to his people, unconditionally, unchanging, immeasurable love for his creation, is shown a small reflection as his mother loves him. I don't have kids of my own. I don't have firsthand experience of knowing what it's like to have a child or bring a child into the world, but I've been told it changes your life. I've been lucky enough to have uh, two nieces and a nephew and be considered, uh, considered a spiritual uncle through the family of the church, uh, but I fully understand that that's different than bringing uh, a child into the world and being a parent. I've heard that it completely reorients the way you think about it everything. Things you thought, oh, that doesn't connect to this at all, all of a sudden are flipped on their head. Uh, there's a, a phrase uh, that I've uh, heard a couple of times. It's probably my favorite explanation to try and describe what being a parent is like. It goes like this. Imagine someone took your heart out of your chest, gave it legs, and all you can do is watch it walk around for the rest of your life. And you just have to try your best to protect it and keep it in sight. <laughs> Don't let anything hurt it. I'd say that probably starts to scratch the surface of what it's like to be a parent. And I find it really exciting to know that Jesus experienced this parental love. He experienced this unconditional love that can only be experienced with a mother to her child. The creator of all things, the one showing us love from the very start, gets to see Mary love him to watch Mary grow in all of this motherly love, all the love she can muster for her baby boy. Jesus gets to experience that. But of course, this is no ordinary baby boy. The chorus of that 90s Stephen Curtis Chapman song goes like this. This baby made the angels sing. This baby made a new star shine in the sky. This baby had come to change the world. This baby was God's own son. He was like no other one. This baby was God with us. This baby was Jesus. And suddenly, as Jesus enters the world, God is with us, Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel was first mentioned in Isaiah seven, and then once again uh, when, the Mary, uh, when Mary is visited by an angel in Matthew 1:22 and 23. We celebrate and remember the Advent candle of love because the one who loved us first, even when we rebelled, became human in every way. He loved us enough to come and take on flesh and die on a cross for us. He loved us enough to suffer the worst we had to offer so that we could be reunited with him. And this is where I had a tough time paring down my sermon a little bit because You can't have this moment of Emmanuel, God, with us without thinking of the ultimate love he showed at the end of his earthly ministry. I'm going to ask the band to come back up on stage, and we're going to sing two more songs to close our service. But I want to remind you that today, Jesus is still Emmanuel. He is still God with us. He is still victorious over death, and we are welcomed into his kingdom. The first of the two songs we are going to sing is called uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a a hymn. Uh, And this song reminds us of truly how immeasurable, how infinite God's love for us is. The first part of the first lyrics ask this question. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. As I close, I would like to ask you to pray with me as we remember the love that we have all been shown, as we eagerly await the celebration of Emmanuel, God with us. Would you pray with me? God, we remember what you have done this morning, the love that you have shown us throughout all of history, the love shown through the Old Testaments to the nation of Israel, even in the midst of their rebellion. God, the love shown at, at, uh, at the first Christmas when you arrived, when you became God with us. God, we pray that as we light this candle, as we remember the love shown to us, God, that it is not something that is new. God, it did not start when you arrived, but God, you have loved us from the start. And God, as we go forth from this place, God, would you remind us to show that love as we can to others? To, as the church, would we love others well? Would we be able to show just a tiny reflection of what that love is? We pray all this in your name. Amen.